So today we're talking, our, we're finishing our series on conflict, all right? So conflict is something that's a reality for all of us in some way, shape, or form that it's inevitable, right? Like we're going to be in some form of conflict in some way or another. And um, we've ta- this is our, really our fifth week on this. Some weeks we did, we broke up into two weeks, but so far we talked about the first week is about the purpose of conflict. And how ultimately the purpose of conflict is to bring glory to God. We enter into conflict and the goal is is that through our actions and through our peacemaking abilities, we bring glory to God. Um, The second talk was about, is this even worth fighting over? And we'll talk about this a little bit more in this message too, a little bit. Is, is this something we should confront or is this something that I just need to let go and give to Jesus? Is this something we need to talk about, or is this something we just need to let go? So is this even worth fighting over? Uh, One week we talked about idols of our hearts, where we kind of had the stand up here with all the different idols that we have, and how the idols that we have in our heart create conflict in our relationships. So the ultimate moral of that story was Jesus needs to be sitting on the throne of our heart. If anything else is sitting on the throne of our heart, it's going to drive us into being discontent, and that's going to pour out into others. Last week, we talked about confessions, how to, be, how to make a proper confession to somebody as opposed to just saying, hey, if I happen to hurt you, I'm really sorry. You know, that's not a good confession. <clears throat> and we walked through the six steps of confession. So um, today we're going to be talking about this. Sometimes God calls us to lovingly confront somebody. And this has got to be one of the hardest things excuse me, I might need that coffee cup in like two seconds if this keeps happening. Um, Sometimes God calls us to confront people, whether that person is in sin or that person has offended us in some way. That person has caused offense. Now you might be saying, hey, if you're offended, that's your problem. That's not true. When we talk about being offended, we're not saying that I saw a Starbucks ad and now I'm offended and I'm going to write Starbucks or like, you know, your shirt offends me. Um, we're talking about if somebody did something to hurt you and that thing is going to damage your relationship, then it's time to have a conversation. A conversation, a, a, a confrontation, if you will. Um, <clears throat> but a confrontation means we want there to be peace. Like we want, we recognize that there's some disunity in the body of Christ and we want there to be peace. And so we don't go into confrontation to cause disunity or to hurt or to inflict pain. We only go into conflict because we want peace and restoration. Does that make sense? It's like when we realize that there's tension in our marriages, we address that, we have a conversation Because we realize that we want to have peace and unity. And it takes confrontation to achieve that, right? Like, it just doesn't happen out of nowhere. It doesn't just blossom out of nothing. It takes confrontation. And this this passage today kind of talks about that. It's in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, if you have your Bibles. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If you want a notebook, I restocked the J-Rock with new notebooks. Thank you so much. Um, I restocked the J-Rock with notebooks, so feel free to grab them if you need one. Um, actually, Bruce, can you turn up these lights a little bit? If anybody's taking notes, those lights will be at full, 
full strength, and I can see everybody's face a little bit better. Thank you so much. Oh, I didn't see you there, Bridget. See, that's why the lights were down, is I didn't see you. Like, now I can see you. You're, you're right there. All right, let's look at Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> this is one of the clearest examples that God gives us how to confront sin if some, somebody's in sin. It's like how to, if there's like disunity and, and not peace or you're offended or there's a problem, like this is the most step-by-step guide that Jesus gives us, okay? So it says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. It's like, whoa. It's your first time reading this, you're like, whoa, who said that? That was Jesus, all right? That was not me. This is not a statement of, of process of order that our church came up with. This is Jesus. And I'll break this down a little bit. But this is a step-by-step guide to handling conflict. And really, like, this passage is kind of like a progression. And most of the time, it doesn't get past verse 15. And if it goes the whole way, we're really talking about this word that has become sort of an ugly word because churches have probably misused it, but it is called church discipline. And we, you know, anybody ever heard of the word church discipline? So when you guys see our church discipline, you're like, ooh, I don't like that. Um, because maybe churches have misused it. Maybe churches have abused people. Maybe churches have done things they absolutely shouldn't have. But church discipline as a core is protecting the bride of Christ and calling out sin when there is sin in the church. Because sin, if sin is happening in the church and it goes unaddressed, untalked about, we turn a blind eye, the church will not be strengthened or, or better because of it. It'll actually hurt the church. It'll actually undermine our mission. And in 1 Corinthians, it talks about this too. It talks about that Paul was writing the church and he said, I've heard that there's some sin going on in your church. He even uses this example. He said, I even heard it said that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And everybody's okay with it. Like nobody's calling this out as sin. He's like, why not? And this is undermining the church. And so think about that. Like Paul's like, hey, there's sin. So like if there's sin happening in Jericho Road Church, we all know about it. We all see it. Maybe it's a partner of Jericho. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's a pastor. And we all just turn a blind eye. And we say, we're not going to say anything about that. And this says, hey, if there's sin and you hear about it, this is the way to handle it. If there's conflict that we're in, this is the way to handle it. Okay? Um, so... We're going to look at six um, steps to confrontation. Six, six steps to confrontation. Um, the first one is, is a prerequisite that we talked about that's not really mentioned in this verse, but it's really this. Um, look over minor offenses. To look over minor offenses, okay? So remember the question we asked, is this even worth fighting over? Is this something we need to fight over or is this something I just need to let go? Because there are those situations, like, hey, this isn't even worth really talking about, right? Like, um, if someone causes an offense, you have to ask yourself, does this need to be addressed, 
or is this something I can overlook? Does it, I need to address this, or can I overlook this? Um, and if you can overlook it and totally like Elsa in the Disney movie Frozen, and you could let it go, like you should totally let it go. And it says if you let it go, it's a good thing. It says it's actually to your glory if you could let it go. If you could just, like water rolling off a duck's back. If you can let it go, it says it's to your glory. Look what it says in Proverbs 19.11. It says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It's like, hey, if you can overlook this and you can truly let it go, you should let it go. In your marriages, in your relationships, in your friendships, you should just let it go. If you can't let it go, you know, there's a couple reasons you can't, like, put it in Jesus' hands. You can't leave it at the foot of the cross. If it's too serious to overlook, um, a couple examples would be, is this dishonoring God in a significant way? Are they dishonoring God? Is there sin involved? Um, You know, is a person in sin? Is this damaging your relationship? Is it hurting someone else or hurting the offender? There's, and if it is, we need to address it, okay? If we really can't let it go. Um, You know, I think of a good example, like, and I won't go into too much detail, but we've all been talking to somebody where we have a friend maybe or somebody that we're getting to know or or we have a a friend in the church, let's just say. Um, And this one is uh, like somebody in the church. And we talked and they said something like really demeaning, and I kind of just let it go the first time, right? Like I'm, I'm like, you know what? I'm not easily offended. I'm a jokester. I can get over it. They said something demeaning, and I totally let it go, right? Like I prayed about it, and I'm like, I don't think this is worth confronting over, and I let it go. And then like a month later, it happened again. And so what do I do? I want there to be peace. I want there to be unity. And we think in our culture, if I remain silent, I'm promoting peace. But when we remain silent, we're actually promoting disunity because it's causing bitterness and anger in my heart, right? And so I really went on to this step two, and I talked to the person privately about it. And I'll go back to it in a second. But look at what it says in step two. It says this in verse 15, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Another translation is, is it says, if they listen to you, you have won them a new brother, or you have won a new sister. Like, you, like that means that, hey, if they listen and they say they're sorry and you forgive them, your relationship went like this to like this. Now you guys are like close friends. You guys have been through some stuff. You guys like now are like good friends. And so I remember when I had this situation I'm talking about that I'm being very veiled about, is I was like, you know what, this is the second time that's happened. I overlooked it. It's like kind of hurtful to me. And so I called the person up and I said, hey, I noticed you said that. I was very specific. I noticed you said that and it, it appeared to me very demeaning and it's not really the first time you said it. And I just want to know when you say that, it hurts me. You know, very like cut and dry. I know that might sound like some people might say, well, you're just being a baby. I don't know. It bothered me and I felt like I should say something. And the person said, I am so sorry. I struggle with doing that, and I'm so glad you called me out on it, and will you forgive me? And I'm like, yeah, I'll forgive you. It's fine. I, just, I had to say something because I couldn't sleep. <laughs> and they're like, I'm so glad you called me. 
And I'm like, thanks. And it, it was like, it was squashed. It was done. And now we're still like best friends. It doesn't have to be like, a, hey, you're a huge jerk and I think you're a jerk. Because when we confront somebody, we're not addressing their identity. Because every single person here who believes in Jesus, your identity is a son or daughter of Christ. And so since you're God's daughter or son, like I have to treat you as such. You have value, you have purpose. And so I never attack people's identity. Like you're just a big screw up, you're a big waste of time, you're, you're an idiot or you're a loser. That's identity crushing. What I'm doing is crushing the behavior. Hey, when you said this, it like hurt me. And here's why. X, Y, and Z. I don't know if you knew it hurt me, but it did. I didn't know it hurt you. I'm so sorry. Okay, like this behavior, I don't know if it's hurt other people, but here's the thing. If we don't address hurtful behavior to you, guess what? This is going to happen to other people and other people and other people, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to create what was a little problem is probably going to develop into a much bigger problem. So the first one is like talk privately to the person. Um, this is very important. Jesus lays this out very specifically in verse 15. It says, it says, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. What Jesus is saying is here is don't go to other people first. And, and even in this case, I didn't go to Billy or I didn't go to Don and I didn't go to all the people and say, hey, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what happened? That would be disobedient to this. Where Jesus says, just go between the two of you. I don't do it in front of other people. I just do it between us. So it's saying, don't gossip about it. And I know it's so tempting because we want to win other people over to our side. Telling other people what a jerk this person is makes us feel better, but it's not good. The Bible calls it gossip. So we need to go to that person um, one-on-one with the goal of reconciling. And we also want to be quick to listen, ask questions. They might explain themselves about your particular situation, and you can understand it and see where they're going, coming from. And maybe they say, hey, I totally didn't mean to say this. You actually offended me here. And I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about it. Um, it's a great time to have this one-on-one conversation. And here's the thing. Um, 99.9% of the time, it ends at verse 15. You go and talk to a brother or sister. You point out their fault. It's over right? You guys talked about it. You squashed it. It's done. You go out and have like ice cream afterwards or coffee and your best buddies and you're just good. Like that's really church discipline. Like right there up to verse 15, that's like church discipline. It's pointing out somebody's flaws. They repent and say they're sorry. And then you go out and hang out. It's like done. Um, What happens here is if that conversation doesn't go well, And so my example is kind of like an interpersonal thing, but let's say you talk to somebody about their sin and you point it out and it does not go well. Um, They don't acknowledge their sin. They don't agree with you. And the whole conversation kind of goes south. It's like, what do you do next? Okay, that's that's point number three. It says, take one or two others along with you. Um, In verse six, it says, but if they will not listen to just you, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So 
really what you're doing is bringing somebody else along or two people along to mediate, to listen, to talk, um, um, to help figure this out. I encourage you to bring, like, maybe ask a missional community leader, um, maybe ask a, you know, somebody that's maybe a leader in the church or somebody to go along with you, uh, or maybe a friend that both of you respect, and bring them along with you to talk to them. Um, part of the reason that mediation is good is, number one, it encourages self-control. So when it's just you and another person, and now think about this in terms of marriage, if it's you and another person, emotions get heightened, things get out of hand, people say things they disagree with. If you bring a mediator in, it totally, like, encourages self-control. It goes back to the mom yelling at her kids and then answers the phone and her voice, like, totally changes. Remember that analogy, right? If you don't be quiet right now, I'm going to, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, like, <laughs> we turn it on and off, and when there's a mediator there, we usually are able to, like, work outside of our emotions. The mediator, the other person can help clarify facts and questions. They can give counsel and just be there to observe. When two people can't agree, this is why in marriage, this step is really healthy. Because in marriage, a wife might point out her husband's sin, and he says, I don't agree with you. I don't see a problem with that. Or husband points out to his wife a sin, and she says, I don't agree with that. And then it's, you take another person along. You call Pastor Jim and say, hey, will you come and meet with us? We're, we're at an impasse. And what you're doing is really just following Matthew 18. We're at an impasse. Help me see things clearly. And the other person's job, whether it's an elder, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a friend, his job is to see things clearly, to call out sin, and to encourage unity. Does that make sense? They're there to help it. Um, you know, it takes wisdom. Bring somebody that's mature in the faith. Don't bring somebody from work who's not a Christian. They're not going to really give you biblical counseling or insight. They're just going to give you worldly wisdom. So bring, like, somebody along who's a, a Christian to help, and it's good. Um, and then number four, uh, in this example of, like, of church discipline, it says, tell it to the church. Verse 17, the first part of 17, it says, if they still refuse to listen, so you talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, they refuse to listen. You bring in somebody else, and you address their sin, and they will not listen. The third step is tell it to the church, okay? Now, what does this mean? Um, the way that we interpret this verse as a church is it doesn't mean, like, go in front of the whole entire church and say, hey, look what this person did. Um, I mean, we've seen that play out with the adulterous woman in Jesus, right? Jesus was in a crowd. Somebody brought the adulterous woman and threw her at Jesus' feet and says, accuser. And that wasn't Jesus' jam to publicly humiliate this woman in front of a group of people. He said, who's without sin? Cast the first stone. And everybody walked away. Um, what I believe this interpretation means and what I think the correct interpretation is is bring it in front of the leaders of the church. And so let's say there's somebody in the church that's in adultery and you go tell your brother about, you confront your brother about it and say, hey, you're in sin, and they don't see a problem with it. You bring another person along to talk to them, and they still don't see a problem with it. Then you go to the elders. Um, the elder board here at Jericho Road Church is an awesome group of guys. We meet every other Monday. We're actually meeting tomorrow night. 
you're always welcome to come if you need to meet with us or you can call me and talk to us and tell it to them and say, hey, there's this person in sin and I need your guys' help. In the church, the elders of the church, who when you become a partner of J-Road, you're putting yourself under the authority of the church, which we should all be under the authority of a church, and the elders say, you need to stop doing this or it's going to ruin your life. If the person asks for forgiveness and repents, we forgive them and we help them be restored, you know. We don't use and abuse them and kick them out of the church. If they repent, good. That's what we wanted. All we want in this process is repentance and people to, like, realize that they're in sin and it's going to destroy their life. And so if they repent, that's good. And then it says, if they don't even listen to the elders of the church, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Now, that's point number five, and it comes from verse 17. It says, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So what does this mean? Um, it's really saying, treat them in the same way you would treat an unbeliever. At this point, if they have sin in their life, you go to one-on-one, they don't listen. You bring a friend, they don't listen. You bring it to the elders of the church, they don't listen. And at that point, they're not repenting. Treat them the same way you would a pagan or tax collector. And so there's two points there. Um, the first thing is treat them like you would a non-Christian. How do we treat non-Christians around here? What's that? With love. We treat non-believers with love. Welcome them. Like, you know, Nicole and I have non-believers over, like we have a network of non-believers that we're ministering to, that we love, we, we go out with, we have over for dinner. We try to show them the riches of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to, to get them to come to the Lord. We love them. But at this point, that person it's kind of like, I don't know if they're a believer. I don't know if they're a believer at this point. Um, and our goal is to bring them to repentance in the Lord. The Bible talks about, like, having fellowship. Like, that's why we have partners. <clears throat> and part of the end result of a partnership is, like, you know, you're a full-blown partner in the church. You're committed to J-Road. You're a partner. And part of that is, is just saying that we believe you're a Christian, like, we hear their testimony. We believe that they're following Jesus. That's good. They become a partner. If we don't believe you're a Christian and you're refusing to repent of all sin, then at that point, they would encourage you to take that person off of the partnership list, and they're no longer a partner. And you're like, man, that sounds really harsh. I believe, if, <laughs> I believe Jesus cares so much about the church that he wants us to be real. And if there's going to be somebody in openly blatant sin— like, we, it has to, that's just how it is. It says in other verses that do not um, be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That means don't marry somebody who's not a believer. Don't date somebody who's not a believer. Don't go into business with people who's not a believer. Like, don't go into partnerships with people who aren't believers. And so this is how that plays out as well. But at any point, if the person asks for forgiveness, it's step six, which is forgive and restore. So if you talk to the person and you point out their sin and they're like, you're right, I'm in sin, I'm sorry, I've hurt you, I'm sorry, we are to forgive them. And when we forgive somebody, we truly need to 
release them of that sin. We do not harbor it. We do not pack it away in the vault. You know, as, as I say sometimes, like the vault is like your mind and use it for later. <laughs> like it's forgiven, right? Um, and so we need to forgive and restore. And at the end here, I just have a couple points about forgiveness that I think are super important. So just bear with me here and listen real closely. Um, the first is this. What forgiveness is not, okay? And before we even jump into this, I just want to ask you, and you don't, don't raise your hand, don't say anything, but is there anybody in your life that you can't forgive? Maybe it's a, it's a parent, maybe it's an ex-spouse, maybe it's somebody who's abused you in your past, maybe it's somebody who's hurt you in your past. Can you think of anybody that maybe you're harboring unforgiveness? Maybe it's just your spouse. Maybe they did something moderate, middle of the road a few years ago, and you said you forgived them, but you really didn't, and you're holding on to that somewhere in the depths of your soul. I want you to think about that and just process that with me. So we are called to forgive everybody, totally forgive. So what forgiveness is not? Forgiveness is not a feeling, all right? Forgiveness is not a feeling. Um, it's an act of the will. It's something that you choose to do, you decide to do. Um, and we must call on God to help us forgive people. Um, it's not forgetting. Many times people think if I forgive somebody, you know, it's forgive and forget, and I can't forget that. Um, it does not mean you forget because you can't will yourself to forget something. It's just not how our brains work. You know, there's not that zapper in like Men in Black where we just zap our eyes and we forget something. It's not going to happen. Um, so in Isaiah 43, 25, it's not going to be up on the screens, but in Isaiah 43, it says that God's, God says that he will remember our sins no more. Do you guys remember that verse? Or you guys ever heard that verse before? God says, I will remember your sins no more. Um, God is not saying that he cannot remember our sins anymore. He's God. He could do anything, right? He's not saying it's impossible to remember your sins. God is promising that he will not remember our sins anymore. He's not saying, I cannot remember your sins. He's saying, I'm choosing not to remember your sins anymore. Therefore, he chooses not to mention, recount, or think about our sins ever again. That's what it means when God says, I'll remember your sins no more. When we forgive, we choose not to mention, recount, or dwell those sins anymore. When you forgive somebody, you are promising that that moment that you forgive them, you're not going to throw it back in their face ever again. You're not going to bring it up and use it as ammo again against that person. You are totally and completely letting it go. And you know what else you're not going to do? You're not going to talk about it with other people. When you forgive somebody, you know, if I forgive Mark and I've totally let it go, if somebody says something about Mark, I'm like, oh yeah, let me tell you about what he did to me a few years ago. None of that. None of that. Because that's not choosing to forgive. That's you putting it in your vault for ammunition for later to hurt them. So forgiving is totally letting go. Um, and, and also what forgiving is not, it's, it's not excusing that person's behavior. You know, we say things like, that's okay. You know, it's, it's not. If it was okay, you wouldn't need to have to talk about this. So when, when we say we forgive somebody, we're not saying what they did was okay. 
And sometimes when we feel like we forgive somebody, we're letting them off the hook, and they, should, they don't deserve to be let off the hook. Um, but we're not doing that. By asking for forgiveness, there is an admission that a wrong has taken place, and we must say, I forgive you. To complete the whole confrontation in the church, when somebody asks you for forgiveness, you really should, when you're ready, say the words, I forgive you. Because when you speak the words, you are letting them off the hook, whether it's your wife, whether it's your kids, whether it's a friend, whether it's somebody in the church, saying those words releases them from their sin. Forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness is a decision modeled after God's forgiveness for us. The Bible says that we have to forgive, we must forgive every single person because God's forgiven us. Look at Colossians 3.13. It says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance to get in someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So saying God has forgiven you of all of your sins. He rescued you from the punishment of sin by the death of his son. So you don't have to go to hell. And he's totally, no matter what you did, anything you possibly did, God has wiped your slate clean. Praise Jesus. That we, you are a new creation in Christ. You've been forgiven of all your sins, so you need to forgive this person of these sins. No questions asked. Maybe questions asked, but it has to happen. <laughs> it's modeled after God's forgiveness. Um, and I'll talk more about that in just a second, but I want to show a short video clip here in a minute. Um, but I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the name Corey Ten Boom. Has anybody ever heard of this name of Corey Ten Boom? Maybe like a few of you have. Um, Corey Ten Boom is a Jewish lady who was in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. And at the, she was a Jew, but she was a Christian. And she was in the concentration camps. And she has, she's written books. She's spoken, you know, back in the day. I'm sure she's dead and gone at this point with Jesus. But she was in the concentration camps. Like, there's a whole backstory to how she ended up there with her family. But when she was in the concentration camps at Nazi Germany, she was sexually assaulted. Her sister was murdered. Her parents were killed. Everything she had was taken from her. And she kept her faith in Jesus Christ is what got her through it. And afterwards, she, got, she survived the concentration camp. She went on a speaking tour telling people about the forgiveness of Jesus, bringing people to Christ, and also telling people, like, they need to forgive. And, you know, during one of these speaking tours, she encountered one of the guards I think it was the guard that abused her and killed her sister. And she recounts this experience. And so I have a short video clip. <clears throat> Last point. It says, and I, and I wrote this, our forgiveness really shows what we think about God's forgiveness. Man, if, if we have a hard time forgiving these offenses down here on earth, the stuff that we've been through, no matter no no matter how horrible the offense and i know that some of you have legit offenses you think about what jesus christ went through to die to forgive all of our sins 
all of the horrible things we have done. And you may not think the horrible, I haven't done horrible things. You might think I've done some bad things. It's sin. If you've, if you've lied once, you've offended a holy and righteous God. And you, if you are struggling with, I don't feel the weight of my sin, and you ask Jesus to help you see the weight, because the smallest lie that you told nailed Jesus to the cross. And God forgave you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And he's asking us in return to forgive our spouses, to forgive our parents who have abused us, to forgive an abuser, you know, to forgive anybody. Like, there's nothing. We must forgive. And how we forgive others shows what we believe about God's forgiveness for us. And you might be saying, Pastor Jim, I can't forgive. And I would say that you can't. I think the story of Miss Ten Boom is, you know, she couldn't forgive. It took God's power literally flowing through her hands and God's power and the Holy Spirit in her to help her forgive. So you don't have the strength on your own. But God has given you the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to forgive others. Amen? Amen. The worship team could come up here. So I have two questions. Have you received God's forgiveness for your sins? If you have not, you simply ask, and he will forgive you of all of your sins. No questions asked. He loves you. He wants you to ask him for forgiveness, and it's available. And if you've done that, and you are harboring bitterness for somebody for any reason, maybe it's something small or big, this is a process to lovingly confront that person and talk to that person and bring about peace and restoration in not only your life, but in the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. And God, we don't even understand the weight of our sin the smallest to the biggest and everything in between, and how that because of the shed blood of Jesus that we could be completely set free, that we could walk in victory, that when we enter heaven, we don't enter in with dirty clothes, we enter in with white robes, and we are forgiven. You, all you see is holiness when you look at us. And God, help us just pour out that same forgiveness to people at our work, people in our lives, people in our past, and truly walk and live full of grace and peace with those around us. Help us be filled with grace to pour out into others. In Jesus' name, amen.